Artist Block, our 25th episode in Artist's Advice, proudly presented by the Clamp Cable Network and their classic movies channel, currently featuring Casablanca, now in full color with a happier ending. I am Rylan Grant, screenwriter, Ringo award-winning creator of fine comics like Aberrant, Banjax, and The Jump. The other voice in the dark, the man in the box to the right this time is... Uh, David Abalone, filmmaker, uh, comic book writer, and uh, coffee achiever. Love it. Uh, if you missed any of our uh, previous conversations, episodes featuring comic luminaries like David F. Walker, Matt Fraction, Stan Sakai, Kevin Eastman, Cecil Castellucci, and Alex DeCampi, and many, many more, uh, our entire catalog can be celebrated via YouTube, iTunes, Spotify, and other purveyors of worthwhile ear cracks. So double on up and uh, and check that out. But um, so 25 episodes, uh, uh, Avalone. Do you think that's we'd last a, this long? That's a, that's a lot. That's uh, that's that's a that's a that's a lot of guests, but it's uh, it's it's been good stuff. Yeah, it's been happy good times. Oh, great! Well, here's to uh, 25 more and 25 more after that. Uh, great show for you today. Obviously, why don't we uh, go ahead and bring our the friends? Jump? On, huh? Do you want to talk about the? Oh, I do want to talk about the jump. I, yeah, wow. See, I, my, I, I just said, yeah, yeah I, I was telling everybody backstage. I just got my my first COVID shot, and it's really kind of making me weird today. So I'm gonna miss uh, miss some things. So uh, uh, the jump. Uh, my Kick You in the Teeth, uh, uh, Paranoid Thriller set in the world of astral projection is available for two more days on uh, on, on Kickstarter as you listen to this. Um, it is a badass comic ride, uh, well-loved, well-reviewed, well-received, all that noise. Uh, get on uh, bit.ly backslash the jump to all of the info is in the show notes, uh, but check it out. Um, yeah, two more days. Get on it. <laughs> Let's bring everybody right. on. Our, our guests today are Skylar Patridge and Scott Koblish. Hello. Howdy, Again. howdy. Hey there. Lovely, lovely Hi. to see you. Scott, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, I'm a cartoonist. I've been drawing comics for a very long time. Um, I did a long run on Deadpool that a lot of people know me for. Um, I wrote and illustrated a book called The Many Deaths of Scott Koblish. Um, I just did a dinosaur book for kids, uh, how to uh, draw DC characters, a um, book that comes out at the end of April. And then uh, I just did a, a story for Anthrax and, and Anthrax Anthology, the band Anthrax. Yeah, wow. Not, not the, the not the disease that kills cattle. Yeah, yeah. That would be a weird. I don't, I don't think they're having anthologies. Or, 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 or the white or the white powder that maniacs yeah. mail to people. There's there's well, a lot of different. Yeah. Oddly enough, the story that uh, they had us illustrate uh, off of the song uh, from uh, the, the album "Among the Living" was the song "Among the Living," which is a adaptation of the Stephen King novel uh, "The Stand." Uh, so in a weird way, I drew a, a there song. There was a chemical warfare yeah, element. A chemical warfare, <laughs> uh, uh, a biological weapon uh, in the Anthrax uh, <laughs> album. Wild. So it was kind of weird. It was uh, interesting to try and um, uh, make uh, a Stephen King novel into uh, 14 pages. Sure. Yeah. Sure. It was, it, it worked out well, honestly. So. Yeah. <laughs> And Skylar, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, um, I'm Skylar Patridge. I am a comic artist and I've worked on Relics of Youth, Resonant. Uh, Resonant's actually what I'm working on right now from Vault Comics. 
And uh, last year I had the opportunity to work on several uh, larger anthologies through Z2. So I worked on True War Stories with Alex, um, as well as Maddie, um, and various other anthologies upcoming soon. I'll be working on volume through Scout. So we've been kind of teasing that for about the last year. So nice. excited to get nice. to that. So yeah. And then actually um, next week, I've got a short in a Marvel yeah. anthology. So a couple of Marvel DC things coming up and then nice. hopefully some things through Dark Horse down the future. So a lot of stuff. And else. a four page story written by Amanda Debert. That's very true. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> called uh, GTFO Girl for yes. the uh, for the Drawing Blood universe that I co-created with Kevin Eastman. Yes, absolutely. And uh, the smallness of the world. I uh, I was looking for an artist for GTFO Girl and found Skylar through the uh, I found you through the Visible Woman hashtag yeah. on Twitter. And then Ben Bishop was like, oh, I know her. You actually yeah. <laughs> know her. You met her in New Mexico. I'm like, oh, yeah. Yeah, I think we had dinner together, but we were on opposite ends Yeah, of the table, we were on so, opposite side yeah. of a long table with loud nerds. Right. So I don't think we actually face-to-face <laughs> like, yeah. at that time. That was, uh, that was a nutty little con. I, yes, I, it was. I, actually, I, I, one of the nicer cons in the state, too. New Mexico has a lack of, of comic love out here. So it's been kind of hit and miss with, with cons. But. It was funny to go to it with Ben, who is a, a Breaking Bad obsessive. Oh, really? So, like, he woke me up one morning. He's like, do you want to go to the diner where uh, they always meet up Gus Fring? I'm like, sure, let's go to the Gus Fring. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Albuquerque's full of really great diners, actually. So Yeah. No, it was a, it was, it was a really great diner. I was impressed with it. But, uh, so yeah. the, the topic we wanted to kick off with today, because I think about this as a... Rylan and I are both relatively new comics writers. Uh, I've been doing it since 2014. Uh, Rylan, how long have you been doing it? Um, five years. Yeah, about the same. Yeah, so, wherever that puts uh, us. So I, I feel like we've been in like a time warp, uh, uh, you know, with this COVID stuff going on. So who knows? But the, <laughs> a question that I always think is worth asking artists is what what do writers need to know? about comic book artists and how, how can we help you better? What can we do better for comic book artists? Um, well, yeah, it, 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 yeah, but more interesting. What are the things we do that drive you absolutely insane? Well, that, I, I <laughs> because that because that's a funner funny. topic. Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's another Scott, topic. Answer this one first or? Yeah. Um, I, I'm, I'm a relative newbie as well, uh, but you know, I think reading enough scripts, you kind of figure out what is helpful and what isn't. Um, my preference is I don't mind doing some of the research as far as, as looking up reference, but if you know what you want something to look like, I love that. Like, give me all of your references. Um, so that's a big thing for me. Also, just uh, simplicity in your scripting is very helpful. So, you know, page one, six panels, uh, separating out dialogue from captions from from action is always really helpful. Um, if there's something specific you want to see in a panel, you know, I I'm always happy to to have freedom in laying out pages, but I am also I would rather know what you want beforehand if there's something specific. Uh, so then we're not going back and forth between layouts and pencils and inks and and having to keep backtracking on stuff. So. Um, I would say 
I like the I like the flexibility. I like the freedom to play with a page. But if there are certain things that you want to see, like give them to me. Sure, that makes sense. One of the biggest shocks for me coming from film, which has fairly rigid ideas about what a script should look like, was the idea that a comic book script has absolutely no industry parameters that it can be the most unintelligible gobbledygook. <laughs> and the first, uh, a colleague I will not name gave me one of his scripts, which I thought was counterintuitive in a lot of the formatting. But I was like, okay, fine. Uh, you know, this is what people use. And I started using it. And then the first time I did a comic outside of the Dynamite world with Kevin Eastman, Kevin was like, uh, could you try a different format? Because <laughs> this is really counterintuitive and I don't like it. And I was like, oh, great. Show me one that works better. And he showed me one that worked a thousand times better. And I was like, well, that that's much like the first one I was ever given. All of the description scene descriptions were all caps. And I was just like, that just hurts my eyes. Why is which is a weird thing to do in a format where literally all dialogue in comic books is all caps. I was like, if you're going to all cap something, I'll cap the dialogue because at least that sort of makes sense with how the page looks. But anyway, that was so I was glad I finally landed on a format that is workable. And since then, I haven't had any artists complain to me. But I thought it was wild that you buy a book of like the 10 greatest comic scripts of all time or whatever, and you look through it and not one of them is in the same like it's 10 scripts and 10 formats. And you're like, how is it even possible to get 10 different formats out of this one art form? Yeah. But anyway, Scott, what are your thoughts on that? Um, you, know, you know, Peter David had, had a, a particular way of doing it so that there was um, all the dialogue was done. Uh, it was numbered. Uh, so mm -hmm. like the entire page had one through 20 or one through eight. Um, it was in each panel that the dialogue was there, but it was numbered so that when I did my layouts, like I could leave, I could sort of, I try and leave room for a dialogue. Uh, it's kind of a guessing game, but it's, it's sure. a rough guessing game, but I like to leave a little room for the dialogue. And then, uh, I would put the number in there that was helpful for me. But, um, as far as, um, formats and, um, you know, I've worked in a number of different ways. Like I, I've done, I've done plot style kind of comics, which I kind of prefer. Um, I've done uh, stuff that's full script. I've done stuff that has a lot of descriptions. I've had stuff that has almost no description of the action. So I guess you just kind of, you kind of, uh, you work with whatever's in front of you. I haven't, I haven't found one to be better than the other, mm -hmm. except for the the plot style kind of thing. I, I enjoy that better. Then I can kind of break down. I don't feel so bad if I'm working on a page and I run across something where I want to uh, stress that in the artwork. I'll often find that it kind of crimps or pushes some things out of the out of that page and into another one. And uh, I've I. I like to be able to play around with the things that are happening in the page. Um, and so sometimes I'll move panels into the next thing, or sometimes I'll, I'll leave everything on that page. It kind of depends. Some, some scripts are like clockwork. You, you, everything has to be mm -hmm. that specific. Like there's a, 
page turn, uh, yeah. you know, some some scene turn, like, but uh, but um, but everybody kind of works differently at it too. I I remember Keith Giffen describing um, his Legion of Superheroes work um, back in the eighties, and he had said that um, <clears throat> he would read the full script um, from the writer. I don't recommend doing this, but he would read the full script from the writer on a bus ride back from New York, and then he would throw it in the trash, and then he would work for the next month on whatever he could remember, because he felt that uh, whatever he could remember from the plot was the most interesting thing. It was the good stuff, yeah. Yeah, the good stuff, and then like it was up to the writer to try and figure out like how to... How to dialogue. Yeah, it was that, that those scripts that he was throwing in the trash were they Marvel style plot style scripts? He wasn't. Oh, no, uh, DC used to do full script, so yeah. Oh, okay. So he was throwing out someone's full script. Yeah, yeah, he was throwing out full full script. I won't. I won't say the names because I am not cleared to tell this story with the names. But there was a very famous popular artist who was being very slow with something. And uh, the art was turning out to look nothing like the script and the writer collaborator called him up and he said, well, go, go through it page by page by page and tell me what's going on. And, you know, tell me what you think. And he realized the guy didn't want to read scripts and was literally drawing layouts while they were on the phone. Oh, like, really? literally, literally like he didn't, he didn't want to read the script. It was too much work to read a script, but if you <clears> called him up, in a in an hour long phone call, he would sketch out the twenty pages. Wow! And it, it took the it took the writer a couple of times. He's like, "You're just simply never reading the scripts, right? That's what this is about. You just don't want to do it." And he's like, "Yeah, I really don't want to read your script." <laughs> some of it, some of it is um, being excited about the project with the writer. Uh, so I could see an angle on that one where the the artist wants to sort of feel involved with right. the person, you know. Um, I don't know, it's a very solitary job, the art job of drawing. Uh, mm -hmm. It takes a certain amount of brain function that uh, when it's engaged, uh, really takes away your ability to function in a social way because all of your brain power is trying to make a two-dimensional surface look like it's a functioning society. Right. So like of people who are interacting uh, with their environment and with one another. So there's some element of like, when you're drawing that it, it takes that brain power that you would normally have with people and just puts it into that page. So uh, it's a very solitary, sedentary, solitary job. And uh, if you're not excited about uh, that particular job or that your particular um, part in it, uh, it can be really difficult. Um, the best job, the All best the artists are going to be like nuts after COVID. <laughs> Sorry, oh, Scott. Yeah, was yeah, absolutely. But yeah. I had, um, <laughs> the best boss I ever had was Stan Lee um uh, because he would get you excited. You would you would go in, you would pitch the idea, you know, you would. He would get all excited and, and and happy about the thing and just be like, go, go, do it, do it. You've got this. And right. and there's an element of like, I would have to then go for 30 days away with that like kernel of like excitement mm -hmm. and then come back with it, you know. So 
Um, you know, you can get that excitement from the characters. You can get that excitement from just the joy that you have on your own of drawing, and you can get that excitement from being part of a community. So mm -hmm. uh, that's as far as writers. That's that's one thing to give some consideration to. So that's it, it's, it, 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 I mean, the, the interesting thing that I'm hearing is that it, it is a lot like writing. I mean, we do the same thing. I mean, it's uh, you know, particularly you're here in Hollywood, and you know. Um, you can't always choose your assignments, right? And you know, and you you go off to a meeting and you get your marching orders and you come back home and you sort of go into the writing cave, <laughs> right? And and you gotta come back with something in six weeks. And it's like, what what the fuck am I supposed to do with white noise for? You know? Um uh you know, and I, I mean a, a lot of my work has been um a lot of my paid work in Hollywood, you know, particularly at the beginning, was sort of, you know, polishing other people's turds. Um, I like to say that, um, you know, I made some, I made some good movies a little bit better. Uh, I made a lot of shitty movies, like slightly less tolerable that, that, that whole nine yards. But, um, but yeah, I, I mean, it's like, you can just, um, you can get lost in this like abyss of sorrow <laughs> if you are not connecting in some way with the material. Right. And you have to, and what I always go back to is like, um, you know, I mean, I, I grew up in a housing project in Detroit, you know, I mean, the, the, the people I grew up with, you know, um, you know, I mean, some of them are doing very well and, and, and whatever, you know, some of them you know, met with ugly fates, right? Uh, uh, and the fact that I'm now in Los Angeles, you know, uh, uh, you know, sitting in a, a, you know, a house I bought with, 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 my, with money I made writing and, and the fact that I just get to make up stories for a living, you know, uh, that that's my day job. But even if I'm writing White Noise 4, I'm, I'm you know, I'm, 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 not, I'm not actually working for a living. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm getting paid to make shit up. And, uh, and, and that's, I think, what I, that's the buoy I swim back to when I find myself in, in really yeah. dark, choppy waters. Uh, but but it, could, it could be hard. Uh, my dad. And so, go, go ahead. My dad had a card on his desk, and I have it on my desk. Uh, my dad was a novelist. He wrote over 200 published novels. Not all of them were, you know, a, he always said, you know, one, one word for truth and beauty and two to put food on the table out of every three. Um, but, uh, but he had this, he had this card that, and from the style of the card, I can tell it goes back to the sixties and fifties when he was starting out and it says, nobody asked you to be a writer. And I think it's the great, no fucking whining card of all time of like this, man, <laughs> these are your choices. If you don't like this, the world's full of other things you could do aside from this crazy thing that you're doing. Oh, and for the purposes, for the visual that bookshelf you see over my shoulder, he wrote all yeah. those books. Wow. That wow. Is book, that is the bookshelf of my dad's stuff. Wow. That's very foreign editions and paperbacks and hardcovers. There's stuff I need to shelve because I bought it from Eve. I, his, his agent was a crook, so I literally still find foreign editions on eBay that my father never heard, that my agent, his agent sold, never told him about. And I'm like, a German version of Death Dives Deep. Who knew that existed? Let me buy that. So uh, so I've got a pile of stuff to shelf. But anyway, all that to say, the ways that we combat the solitariness of it, I think are important. And the, you know, uh, the artist I've worked the most with is a guy named Dave Acosta, who's in Detroit, or Dearborn, I should say, outside Dearborn. I've never met him. I've never been within... 1500 miles of Dave Acosta. Uh, but when we're working together, uh, we 
IM each other on Facebook constantly. And he sends me every layout, every pencil, every ink. And it's not that I'm like correcting his work. It's we're working on it together and it's mutual enthusiasm. And it's a good thing as, you know, not that I'm his supervisor, but that, you know, he shows me a page. I say, that looks fantastic. Great. Woo. You know, go team. And it's, I think that makes for, I don't, we don't feel like we're two guys, 1500 miles, 2000 miles apart who sort of know each other. We're good friends who work together. You know, literally the I am chat window is our, you know, is the, is the coffee corner at the office. The two of us are working at together. And yes, it would be nice if we actually saw each other now and again, but we do have that communication and going back to something Skylar said, uh, one of the, a lot of the stuff that I've written has been period stuff. And so obviously there's a ton of reference. And I, one of the first things I learned as a comic book writer, I start a Pinterest page for every project and just every prop, every location, even every face. And it's not like draw this movie star exactly the way they appear. If it's not, you know, an actual licensed work, but it's like Doc Savage is kind of like if Gary Cooper went to the gym, that's, what I have in mind for Doc Savage, you know, his Pat Savage is kind of Ava Gardner ish go that direction with Pat Savage. And, uh, and I find that, you know, part of it is a little bit controlling, but another part of it is if a Russian spy pulls out a gun in 1954 in a comic book, I don't want my artist having to look up what the hell that would be. Here's a picture of a Tokarev semi-automatic pistol commonly carried by members of KGB in the 1950s. There you go. Draw a Tokarev. That's that's yeah. what that's what you got to that's what you got to work with. And again, it, it's it's exactly like directing a film in that yeah. there are the props and the locations and the whatever that you give a shit about, and there are the things that aren't vital to the storytelling. And if you and the artist are on the same page with the storytelling, that's not really an issue. But I think, as you were saying, Skylar. You know, when I work with Dave and with most artists, it's always that thing of do the panel layouts however you think works best. This is my sketching it in for you. These are the story points that need to hit. It would be nice to be on a close-up when he says this line because this is an important. If I were making this movie, I would want this in a close-up, not in a silhouette from 300 yards away. Like, you know, there are things that are obvious. And as you were saying, Scott, I'm as a writer, I'm obsessed with page turns. So mine are a little clockworky in that sense of uh, first project I did with Ben Bishop. There was an important transformation scene that he thought was better as four pages than two. <laughs> and I was like, well, it's great that we're doing this on a Kickstarter con- comic and not something where the publisher is going to go, oh, the comic's 24 pages now <laughs> instead of 22. Yeah. Like that would be, a, that could be a problem for you. Um but he, from an art standpoint, he was 100% right. The sequence needed the extra pages, and we paid for the extra pages, and it was fine. Uh, but I told him, next time, call me, and we'll talk about <laughs> spacing that out and budgeting pages and whatever. But, uh, but yeah. yeah. Sometimes uh, when you're drawing something, you'll... I, I like to add stuff that I can to it from my perspective. So... 
you know, if I have an idea that I like to throw out there, what I've had different results from different writers that I've worked with. So some people are like aghast, but other people um, kind of roll with it. So it depends on the writer. It depends on the person. Um, I try and give as much as I can of myself into something. So that's part of what I'm trying to give. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. so, you know, so I can see where that would work but, or not work. But I'm glad that, you know, Kickstarter, we were talking about it a little bit earlier and it just seems to be a great, a great way to accomplish things. I've been thinking about doing something similar. So, you know. You should. It's, uh, I think you've got the kind of, you know, following and the kind of work that you wouldn't have any, like, pick the thing you most want to do that no one will publish. <laughs> you know, that's, that's, yeah. Cause, cause also I think people have, there's, there's a little bit of a basic human bullshit detector uh, that when someone has a, a thing on Kickstarter, you can kind of tell when it actually means something to them or when they're just trying to, you know, heap up the largest pile of money they can. Uh, without having to go through a publisher. But if you go out there and you you say, this is a thing that I love and no one will let me, you know, no one no one's going to publish this thing because it's so weird or it's so personal or it's so whatever. It's a it's a great it's a great place for that. Well, yeah, and that, that's really the beauty of it is that, you know, for forever we had to wait for permission from someone to make our book, right? Or, or we would just discount uh, a, a certain premise right off the bat because it's like, ah, well... I, I can't get Dark Horse to bite on that, you know, it's just kick it to the side. Now you can literally, as long as it is good, you know, uh, uh, you will find an audience for it. I mean, there is yeah. a just rabid and enthusiastic audience there. And it's, I mean, what's interesting now is just how it's evolved over the last couple of years, because there is this, I mean, first of all, there is the, the, the comic shop audience, which, you know, you're already a huge hit with, but then there is this other audience. The Kickstarter audience is separate. There's some crossover yeah. there, but not nearly as much as you think. That was like the huge... You know, that, that, that blew my mind. And the Kickstarter audience is so like rabid and, and enthusiastic and engaged and they become like your biggest fans and they become lifetime fans. And so literally anything you, once they back a Kickstarter, if you treat them right and you deliver a great book, they will, you know, you could like, you know, you could wipe your ass with 20, 24 pages after that and they'll be first in line to, to, to buy it. <laughs> and, and, you know, I, the unusual stories too, you know, the, yeah. the stuff that, yeah, they're looking for the stories yeah. that aren't getting picked up by publishers. So they want that. If there's a market for it. Yeah. Well, it, it, yeah. And, and that's the beauty of it is that, um, you know, so many, um, it, it, yeah, I mean, the, the, the kind of story, I mean, there, you know, you, you, you get down to in, into where it's like, there are so many people out there that have, they haven't for years seen themselves in a comic book, right? But they can go to Kickstarter and find their story, you know, uh, uh, which is, which is just, a, yeah, which is just amazing. And, and I mean, really what's happening is like, and we've talked about this on the show before, but I'm, I'm interested to see what you guys think about it. But, you know, the, the, the audience, the readership is starting to fracture. I mean, basically like comics right now are where music was when Napster hit, right? Um, it was for the longest time that, you know, if, if you, if you were a, you know, you were, you were in a band. Well, there were, there were five labels that mattered. And if you didn't, you didn't sign a deal with one of those labels and give all your rights away, then you wouldn't get on the right radio stations. You, you wouldn't become a rock star. Nobody, nobody would give a shit about you. Right. And then, and then Napster hit and then iTunes and the whole nine yards. And now, you know, now you don't have to sell 2 million albums, uh, you know, in the first 48 hours anymore. It's, uh, 
um, you you know, you have people making making music in rooms like this, like you know, in their basement or whatever, on 13-inch Mac laptops, and they throw it up on Spotify, they throw it up on Bandcamp or whatever, and like the you know the so so the bar is set so much lower. You know what I mean? For 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 me, it's like I mean, I've I've, I've made mostly. Um, uh, you know, uh, it, it, indie books, you know what I'm saying? Like, uh, uh, create our own stuff. And it's like, you do, uh, you know, I, I'm lucky in that my day job is writing uh, movies and TV shows. And so that's what pays me. And in fact, eventually I take my comic book and I get it set up as a TV show and they pay me to write the TV show and then I get paid that way too. But you don't make a ton of money making create your own uh, uh, comic books. However, you can go to Kickstarter and make yourself a couple of dollars. Um, uh, and so it's just, it's, it's, it, you know, and not just that, it's like, you, you know, you'll put 15 or $20,000 in, in, you know, in terms of art and, and printing and all of that stuff into making your creator own book. But again, you can go to Kickstarter, you can recoup that budget. So it's like the game is like radically changed now it's, it's starting to fracture. And so it's like, so if, you know, if we're going to, if we're going to take that analogy and, and push it further then um, you know, then. I don't know if like uh, you know Kickstarter is Kickstarter's iTunes or Kickstarter Spotify or or, or or something like that, and it's just it's just gonna blow up from there. I mean you know the the you know I mean the the comic shop is never gonna go away. Of course, that's its own thing. It's a community center. Uh, there's still this collectability issue that, that that you're getting into. But man, I mean where where comics are gonna be in in five years or two years or it's 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 crazy. It's gonna change so radically. It is interesting, yeah, and I think. Kickstarter is kind of at a place right now where it, I don't, it's definitely leveled the playing field for comics. Um, but there does seem to be a trend in celebrity use of it um, that I'm not sure what the future of that's going to be. Yeah. Um, you know, bringing in people like Keanu Reeves to sell a comic book that you're going to turn into a Netflix series is a sure. slippery slope. And it's, hard yeah. on the little guy that's trying to make his comic well, that he loves, you know. Here's the one thing I, that I, I can say yeah. about that, because I, I definitely get where, you know, Keanu Reeves has enough money to print as many comic books as he wants. By the same token, though, if you think of Kickstarter as a store of some kind, the barrier to anyone finding my book on there, Ryland's book on there, your book on there, is the first Kickstarter that you back. You have to create an account. You have to give type in your credit card numbers. You have to do all of this stuff. Once you're in, everyone that backed that Keanu Reeves book got a ton of emails from Kickstarter about the Keanu Reeves book. And at the bottom, it listed four other projects they could back. Hmm. Did they back them? Maybe, maybe not. But well, 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 I mean, uh, uh, according to Kickstarter's set of comics, uh, uh, many, many did. So, I yeah. mean, we, you know, we, we had around. The, so, yeah, that's so. the that's the real that's the real tricky thing about it is that once people have created an account, yeah, maybe they'll never go back again. Maybe they only they were only in it for the John Wick of it all, and they don't care about anything else. But I think it's more likely that they'll go, oh, this other thing is looks kind of cool. Let me try this and let me try. My favorite thing is like, you know, I'll back something of Ryland's and I get an email trying to sell my own comic back to me. You know, when I back one of my colleagues things and I have a I have a promotion going at the same time, they're like, oh, you might be interested in David Avalone's drawing blood. Yes. You know what? I might. That's an excellent, excellent guess. It's the same thing with Amazon. I sell my dad's old books on Amazon as as ebooks 
It's a way of keeping them in print. And sometimes I'll buy a, you know, I'll buy an old mystery novel. I'll buy a, you know, a Dashiell Hammett hardcover that I don't have. And it'll literally say, you might be interested in the Michael Avalone Ed Noon series. And I'm like, good guess. Good guess, Amazon. That's exactly a thing that I'm interested in. So there is that the other aspect of it, and it doesn't apply to Keanu Reeves at all, but there is a thing where I think people overestimate how easy it is to get things made, films, comic books, whatever. And there's a, what Kickstarter always gives you is that uh, artistic freedom, the freedom to do whatever the hell you want and a publisher can't have, has no input, you know, zero input. Uh, and as much as, you know, I'd like it if Kickstarter mostly helped the little guy. There's a part of me that thinks if Kickstarter had been around in the 70s, Orson Welles would have made five more movies because he would have been able to go direct. The studio executives who were turning him down for whatever he was pitching in the 70s, he would have been going, fuck it, everybody loves Citizen Kane. I'll go, I'll go on Kickstarter and make another movie. You know, uh, Martin Scorsese would have made The Last Temptation of Christ in 1980 with Robert De Niro instead of eight years later with Willem Dafoe, because there are history is full of people's dream projects, not getting made even rich, famous people because of how things used. And again, even filmmaking has been democratized. First time I used Kickstarter was to produce a low budget film for about $150,000. And we, we made the money and we made the movie and it's out there. And, you know, it's a uh, Mars Kickstarter, like long time. That ago was the, that was one of the first, Veronica Mars and Zach Braff, I think, kickstarted something once. Yeah. Interesting. And those were the first two where people were like, come on, really? Reach into your pocket and take out some of that sweet, sweet residual money. But, you know, but the other, the other aspect of that is, you know, the Veronica Mars guys didn't go to anybody's house, put a gun to their head and say, support my Veronica Mars movie. The, you know? People people backed it because they wanted to, and and they, they are free to do so. And yeah. you know, uh, I mean, in some cases, you're definitely seeing publishers and movie studios using Kickstarter as uh, proof of concept testing ground. Like they literally, I think they literally told Warner Brothers told the Veronica Mars guy, go to Kickstarter and see if you can get, see if you can get ten thousand people who give a shit about there being a Veronica Mars movie because we don't believe anybody <laughs> wants that movie. Yeah, and, and, I, and I think that that is the biggest Kickstarter misconception is that it's about money, you know? Um, I mean, when I, so so people were on me for about two years to do a Kickstarter. Um, I, I'm, I'm really good friends with uh, Charlie Stickney, who's the um, now the co-publisher of Scout Comics, but he started out on Kickstarter with a book called White Ash, which is great. Everybody should go out and get it. But, um, but Charlie built his comics career on Kickstarter. He started out with, you know, he, he Kickstarted issue one and he had, 300 backers and $12,000 or something like that. And, you know, he did like five or six more. And I think the last one was 1300 backers and, you know, uh, $60,000 or something like that. Um, and, you know, he's made, I don't know, 250, $300,000 on Kickstarter. And that's great. The money is great. But, but, but really what it did was it built the brand of the book more than anything. It built a, a rabid fan base. And, and so um, I don't, I don't do anything half-assed. Like if I was going to do a Kickstarter, I wanted to kind of understand it as best I could backwards and forwards. And so um, one of the cool things that I have kind of at my disposal is that all the Southern California cons, uh, I have a relationship with them. And so they'll just let me put up whatever panel I, I, 
you know, I, I, I feel like usually. Um, and so if I want to understand something, if I don't know something, I will find five or six people smarter than me and I'll get them up in front of a con crowd and I'll just pick their brains. And so I did probably, I don't know, six, seven, eight, you know, nine, 10, uh, Kickstarter, uh, you know, kickstarting your comic panels. I, I moderated them, put them together, uh, before I ever did a Kickstarter. That's and it was just, met, if I remember correctly, that, that was, that was absolutely how we met us. It's like, oh yeah, this guy who, oh yeah, that guy that made a hundred grand with drawing blood. Let me get him up and, uh, and pick his brain and just like suck the knowledge out of him. But, um, but the, um, but, but I went into it thinking, oh, wow, this might be a good way to, to make a couple of bucks or to make my, you know, I mean, more than that, it's like, okay, well, I'm making these greater own, own, own comics. I'm, I'm trying to pay my artists a, a, a good wage and all of these things. And so I need to figure out how to, how, how to do this and, you know, whatever, raising that money will get me my, my, my budget at the very least. But, but the, the earth shattering, you know, sort of a, a, a bit that I took away from all those panels was that the money is fine, but it's secondary. It is really a, um, it is a, it's almost like a social media tool. It's a fan base builder. Um, it is a, uh, and, and it, it's, it is a, it, and it's a brand builder. You know what I'm saying? If you can point to a, to Kickstarter success, it, it means a lot. And I, I'm seeing that it means a lot in Hollywood, you know? Um, um, I don't even have to, um, I mean, the beauty now is that you can take your Kickstarter books. It, it didn't used to be that, but you, you, you know, you kickstart your book, you can then take it to a, a, a traditional publisher and get it in a comic shop. So you can, that was what Charlie did. Charlie, you know, Scout Comics. Uh, Charlie is now the head of Scout Comics because Scout loved his Kickstarter book so much that they wanted to put it in comic shops. They loved how he had built the brand and they're like, we need to get in this frame of mind for the future. And so they, they promote him to, to co-publisher. Um, uh, but, but yeah, building that fan base, uh, building that brand is such a big thing. And so, you know, uh, you know, people like me uh, can do it on the lower end where it's like, okay, well, um, uh, you know, how am I going to get images attention with this book? Or how am I going to get Hollywood's attention with this book? Um, how am I going to, you know, again, just as I'm kind of sort of starting out, build a fan base, build these rapid people that are going to be there for everything that I put out. And I've started to do that in, in, in a really interesting way, but, but even for, the, the the bigger people, you know, it's like, um, you know, a, a, again, Veronica Mars, it was like, well, it was kind of, it was kind of tired. It was kind of old. It was, it felt like you were revisiting it. Right. And so you needed something, you needed some big promotional, like kick in the, in the junk to kind of like re-energize that. Right. And re-energize that fan base, but also like show other people out there who maybe haven't given it a shot or had maybe written it off that, Oh wow, this is actually still interesting. And so, and so you do this thing and the money's fine, but they don't really need money. But, but, but that big promotional bomb that went off, like reinvigorates the whole franchise. Um, and, And uh, and you create evangelists for your work also because they feel, you know, they, they feel connected to it and they feel a part of it. You know, They've literally and, brought it to life, right? I mean, right. So, yeah, I was gonna yeah. say backing yeah. a Kickstarter is you're more involved in that whole process, so it yeah. feels like you're more invested in wanting to make sure that it succeeds in mm-hmm. whatever iteration that it takes after the Kickstarter. So, I'm thinking of a, a friend of mine, Pat Shand, who he has an entire, uh, I think it's called Space Between. It's his whole company, and it's mm-hmm. I think four or five volumes of his series, Destiny New York. And it's been entire, like he's done it all through Kickstarter and he's got, you know, offshoots and other side characters that he's taken and done a a little volume for this character. So he's built this whole, you know, universe of his own through Kickstarter. So it's, it's definitely possible to 
not need the the big publisher, but yeah, yeah no, I think particularly... he's enough of a fan base to those people will follow him, you know, if yeah. he takes that book somewhere else. So and it well, also yeah, works, yeah, yeah. Go ahead, go it works the other way. I wanted to say particularly saying this to you, you know, to Scott and Skylar. If you have any big two credits at all, that follows you to Kickstarter. Yeah, 100%. People are way, Dave Acosta did a, a Kickstarter with, uh, I'm spacing on his name, Saladin Ahmed, uh, who's done a bunch of Marvel stuff. And they had a ton of money for a, a vampire. Uh, it's a great idea. It's a Dracula vampire story set during the Crusades. And oh, the fun. lead characters are a Muslim warrior and a nun traveling with crusading knights. Those are his two main characters who go up against Dracula, who go against Vlad Tepish, I guess. That's uh, but it made a ton of money. And part of me was like, what's the, but Saladin has some, and I'm so sorry if I'm butchering his name, has some major Marvel comics credits. And I think those people came to kicks, followed him to Kickstarter. Um, and I, well, yeah. And it's, 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 I mean, the average person logs on a Kickstarter, right. And, and they're, you know, right now there are 250 comic projects on, on Kickstarter, which is like maybe an all time record. So, um, so it can become hard to sort of, uh, you know, sort through that, but, um, you know, the, the algorithm algorithm is such that kind of the cream rises to the top. Right. And, and certain things stick out. It's like people go there and, um, I mean, people, again, there are people that just buy their comics on Kickstarter and they, and they have like a monthly Kickstarter budget or whatever, just like, you know, someone going to a comic shop would. Right. And so, you know, I, I'm going to back five projects or I'm going to spend, you know, $200 on Kickstarter this month or whatever. And, um, you know, it becomes kind of weighing what's there. And, and sometimes, sometimes a concept may just knock you on your ass. Um, sometimes it may just be the quality of the product, you know, and, and of course, I mean, if you guys did projects that, you know, that would all be there. Um, but a lot of times it's cachet, you know, again, when, when, when Keanu Reeves pops up, like, um, uh, you know, you want to see what Keanu's up to, or, um, uh, there's a, um, there's, I, I'm running a Kickstarter now, so I'm very familiar with what's on there. Um, there is a, a project called Butts and Seats, which is the, uh, the Tony Schiavone story. Tony Schiavone is, uh, you know, pretty, uh, kind of like a Hall of Fame wrestling announcer. And so, you know, any wrestling fan, you know, uh, it's, it's, you know, Tony's one of the creators, um, any wrestling fan is in on that. Right. So, so there's cachet. I mean, you know, I, I, I was lucky coming onto Kickstarter my, my first time because, you know, I had a little bit of cachet. I had, you know, I, I had film credits. I could say, you know, yeah, I, I, I wrote for Justin Lin and JJ Abrams and Ridley Scott. And, and then also I had a, you know, a couple of a uh, couple of indie books that were successful and, you know, I, I want to Ringo for one of those. So just those things, you know, I could say, and then it, it kind of, it kind of yeah. sets you apart from, you know, the, uh, you know, the, the, the most of the pack. So yeah, if you guys could come on and with the credits you have, like you would immediately, you know, you, yeah. you would immediately kind of rise to the top of that pile and you would have some cachet and you would have a lot of backers who were really interested and enthusiastic about it. So this may sound like an incredibly dumb question, but how does someone get like, like you put up your Kickstarter, but how do, how do people find you? I mean, I guess you can do whatever, uh, um, a lot of it is social media. Yeah, I mean, well, like, well, 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 I, I mean, I'll, I'll push back on that because it is to a certain degree. Here's the, here's what happens is that is that I mean, you already have a fan base. Uh, uh, you have to get your people to show up on day one, basically. Like, um, um, 
you know, basically you have to deliver as many people as you can right off the bat. Um, and yeah. then that, that kind of informs Kickstarter's algorithm. Um, mm. and, and that will, t you know, how you do in your first 48 hours, it tells Kickstarter how seriously to take your project. This is a project that a lot of people are going to be interested in. A lot of people are going to be backing. So we need to put it in front of as many people as possible. And then, and then you fire up the, the internal algorithm. And what you'll find is that the lion's share of your backers, like 80 to 90% of the money you take in comes from, comes internally from Kickstarter. It comes from them putting your project in front of people. It's like David said, uh, if I send an update on my project, um, you get the update. And then and then down below, it says, you know, here are three other Kickstarters you might be interested in. Right. And so much of the money comes from that. It's like, oh, yeah, this astral projection thing, that sounds awesome. Uh, uh, let me click on that and see what it is. Um, and so... Yeah, and so I mean that's the that is the the real beauty of Kickstarter is that they they have you know sort of control of of what this rabid fan base sees, um, mm. and so if you kind of treat the algorithm right, it'll treat you right, um, and 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 they deliver the backers. Like there there's this misconception that it's like okay, well I have to. I have to exploit all my friends, family, all that stuff. And like, you, you have to do it to a certain degree. Like you, you want your diehards, whether it's your fans, your family, your friends to show up on day one. But, but, you know, as, as long as you deliver on those days, then kind of the rest sort of sorts itself out. But, yeah. but you keep promoing it on social media. You, um, you, you trade mentions with other campaigns, you know, uh, it's kind I, of a tit for tat for in comics, yeah. especially, you know, where, yeah, well, where people say we're all exchanging the same 20 bucks for each other's <laughs> Kickstarters. Like, <laughs> Yeah. yeah, but it but it is that thing of like, you know, Charlie Stickney reached out to me the last time I was doing one and he said, if you do a promotion that highlights my comic, I'll do a promotion that highlights your comic and you get, you know, you get some overlap. And, you know, it is that I used to, you know, work on burlesque shows with my wife and it's that thing of you're only a success when you look out in the audience, you don't recognize anybody. Yeah, yeah. When That's the audience funny. is all your friends and family members, you're like, yeah, I'm still not, this is, this is still fucked. We're never going to grow this thing. But when you peek out the curtain and you got, I don't know any of those people. That's I don't know the what best. they're doing here. I don't know how they found us, but great. You know. That's the best feeling. I used to be in a band and yeah, anytime I saw people I didn't recognize, I'd get so happy. <laughs> yeah. Like I've looked out the window. Uh, I've looked, I've peered through curtains at a, at a relatively packed house and go, I handed a flyer personally to every single one of those people and shook their hand. So this is, this was just too much work. I, I, I want to stop doing that every month. Um, I'm just, I'm complete left field question. I'm just curious who was writing your uh, Deadpool run, Scott? Oh, that was uh, Brian Posehn and Jerry Duggan. Oh, I love both of those guys. That's why I asked. I've had a feeling it was Jerry who I, who I, I like very much. Um, and I, I yeah, Jerry it. and I were talking about doing a Kickstarter, and I start. I got about twenty pages in, and life happened. But uh, but we've we've been bad, batting it back and forth, and I've been still doing stuff with Brian as well. And I just sure. did a dead thing, so they're they're big in my life. They're they're really great. So, and they're big in general. They're large, like you. They're large guys. They're Brian they're not, is like they're not small. Six, six Brian, is freakish, Brian is freakishly yeah. large, and if it's, I remember, has a teeny tiny little wife. Oh, I've, ne I've never met his wife, but I think uh, Jill might have met her. But uh, uh, it's funny. I was at San Diego with Brian, 
And there's that that key where like I got to watch uh, the difference between like comic book famous and fame because <laughs> we were wa trying yeah. to walk from one end of the convention to the other and like I'd be talking to, to Jerry and Brian and uh, and Jordan our editor and uh, we would be walking and I realized like Brian wasn't here anymore and I'd look back behind me and sure enough Brian was signing something and we, it must have happened like 40 times the amount of time that we like were crossing the the floor he just was always stopped and signing things for people so i was like oh that's the difference between tv famous and um, yeah i walked around i used to i'm i'm friends with uh, david silverman who directed the first who directed the simpsons opening credits and the simpsons movie and all that and wow. uh, we were walking around comic con once and ran into matt Groening and tried to walk around. And this is even, this isn't, this is 2002 or 2003. This is a long time ago. And it was literally like, I later, they later did a scene very much like it in a Simpsons episode. It's like, not just people stopping him and shaking his hand, but like, can you draw me as Bart Simpson on a skateboard on the moon being attacked by dragon lasers? And I was just like, Yes, he's going to stop and draw that for you right now. That is that is what Matt, Matt Groening has all the time in the world to do that for you. And he was like, I just want to look at art books, you know, like uh and we were we were we were basically just trying to shield him from people being able to recognize his face, but it is a whole a whole different world. Um, I'm a huge nerd about it just because I get more excited about the comic fame people, like the people who are comic famous. Sure. Because, sure. you know, I mean, the celebrity is already being hassled all the time. Like, I don't yeah. want to contribute to that. So I'm like, I'm going to go and put my attention over here on this famous comic person with the comic oh, fame, I, you know. <laughs> and there's a degree to which it's it's also a different kind of respect. Like, I... I've been introduced to any number of famous actors at cons. I'm going, oh, hey, nice to meet you. And then I'll walk by Jerry Conway's table with my wife. I'm like, I, I don't know what to say to Jerry Conway. <laughs> I, don't, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how to, to like, it'll be the biggest TV I'm star kidding. in the world. I'm like, oh, hey, nice to meet you. And then it's like, oh, I, what do I, what do I talk to Jerry Conway about? There's so much. Yeah. Uh, and well, you don't the last the time I saw him like... at a con, like the third day I came at, back with some comics and I had worked out what we were going to talk about. And yeah. Well, you don't want to be the person who's just like, I love your work. And then you go, oh, yeah. else, which is always all I can think of. So yeah. I, I wind up walking by their table all weekend. Yeah. And then on the last day when they're tired, you know, that's <laughs> when I get to come up and bother them. <laughs> yeah. I had a good 20 years of seeing Michael Golden at cons. And every single time I saw him, I went, I should bring my copy of Micronauts number one in tomorrow. And I chickened out every day. And the last time I saw him, I finally brought Micronauts number one. And I think it's Star Wars 38 or 37 that he did back in the day. He did a fill-in issue of the original run of Star Wars, which is really beautiful stuff. And I finally was like, can you sign my, can you sign my comics, sir? Uh, and the and, you know, and if they don't recognize you or know your name, the last, oh, you know, I write comics myself. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you don't want to have that conversation with a legend. Um, but sometimes, you know, some the, the most wonderful thing for me about entering this business is meeting is meeting some of the people I've admired my whole life yeah. and becoming, if not friends, at least friendly with them. You know, I, I now have a video series of two events of me and Howard Chaikin singing show show tunes together 
at Long Beach Comic Con, which I'm very I'm very proud of that video series. And the last time I saw Howard, he's like, "We got to figure out what our next number is going to be." Um, from the classic American Songbook, and then and so that blows my mind. I was walking yeah. around New York Comic Con with my wife, and we passed Matt Wagner's booth, and he went, "Hey, David," and I was like, "And my my wife says that feels good, right? Feels real good." I was like, <laughs> As someone who bought Mage number one in the 80s, yeah, it feels really fucking good that Matt Wagner has the lightest idea who I am, you know, maybe has read one of my comics, whatever. So that's a big, you know, that's a big thing. Uh, Jerry yeah, Duggan true. was someone I think I knew online and then, you know, finally met at signings and things. And I just, oh. you know, I love the guy. He's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah That's yeah, a whole yeah. other topic for comics, too, is how it's so much of it the community exists online because we're all over the place. And so, mm -hmm. you know, there's plenty of comic people that I, I don't know what they sound like. I don't, maybe yep. I don't even know what they look like. Um, but you talk every day yeah. <laughs> on Twitter yeah. or whatever. So. Yeah. Is, uh, is there a lot of, uh, no, is there a lot of uh, cartoonists out in Albuquerque or? Um... There's a small community of uh, comic people. And then there, there's some cartoonists and illustrators as well. I mean, it, New Mexico, especially Santa Fe, is full of artists, um, but they tend to be a little more fine art related. Um, yeah. You know, Aaron Campbell is in Albuquerque, Andy Coons in Albuquerque. So there's there's definitely some people out here. Um, and there's, there's Rick, small Rick Erie is in Rick New Mexico, Erie. isn't he? Yep. Yeah, Rick moved out there after his mom passed away. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, Rick, Rick is my here. wife's favorite cartoonist. Mm -hmm. So like our every year at San Diego Comic-Con, I bring her over to his booth and she shyly buys whatever his latest <laughs> book is. And I take a picture of the two of them. And he is such, he and his wife are such incredible sweethearts. Both of them are amazing. Deb, Deb I think her name is. Yeah, they're, yeah. they're cool people. They really nice. are. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's and the nice thing about cartooning is that there is that, that community, you know, that exists. So. Yeah. No, and it's a, it's a, God knows, like any community, there are, you know, there are bad apples in it. But uh, I've, I have found it to mostly be a welcoming community. Uh, but it's, you know, I, I the lab, one of the last uh, Long Beach Comic Cons I went to, I did a panel on, wasn't a panel, I did a one person presentation on networking, because I think it's a deeply misunderstood phenomenon that yeah. everyone kind of gets wrong. I decided to do it because I had gone to Long Beach Comic Expo the year before and there had been, someone else had done a panel on networking and at the cocktail party afterwards, some a stranger walked up to me and handed me his comic book. <laughs> and I was like, clearly that networking panel did not land. Because <laughs> don't, don't ever do that. Don't, don't walk up to me. I mean, literally before hello, he was yeah. handing me his bagged and boarded comic. And I was like, let's not do that. But I literally, you know, I start off with, uh, you know, paraphrasing JFK. And it really is a little bit of ask not what comics can do for you. Ask what you can do for comics. It's uh, any community, what you put into it is ends up being what you get out of it. Yeah. And if you're willing to put kindness and professionalism and all of that into it, um, you you can have a pretty smooth experience with it but that said it is a community of introverts <laughs> you know some of us are extrovert introvert you know some of us are introverts that like to get out and have a drink with people but uh 
it's a lot of people who aren't used to crowds and used to, you know, being working in a workplace with a lot of other people. Um, so it's an interesting, it's an interesting group. Well, and after another year and a half, it's going to be really interesting. As as Skylar pointed out, it's going to be interesting to see how everyone handles. Everybody's all awkward because we've been yeah. even more yeah. alone than normal. Yeah. But it'll be, you know, it, it, there are there are people who are excited to get back to cons. There are people who are like, "Ugh, that was such a hamster wheel," and I was kind of happy to get off it. I definitely have heard from people who are that way. I think I'm. I've heard this from a handful of people. And it's funny that it was just something in the air. Twenty January of twenty twenty was absolutely was like I don't go to enough cons, and I'm not I'm not out there, I'm not out there interacting enough at cons. I'm gonna this year I'm gonna go to every con. I'm gonna try to get myself on guest lists. I'm gonna try and you know do as many panels as I can. And oh well, not not how it not how it worked out, you know. But. Uh, yeah, Jill but, yeah. and I on even going to Sweden. There was a convention in Sweden that I was really looking forward to, and that was in May, set in May. So the weird thing was Sweden didn't close down. So when we did, like, they were just kind of like, oh, what? You know, like some of the hotel reservations were like, we're here. Right. <laughs> I was right. like, uh, I'm not going to be there. Is there anything we can do? You know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But it's you know there there and it there are conventions all over now. You can pretty much go anywhere. Um, you know, I have not yet reached the point where people are paying for my. I've only I've been the guest of honor at one convention, and it was because I wrote a Doc Savage comic book, and there are there is a group of maybe sixty to hundred Doc Savage fans who have a Doc Savage convention every year, and as you might imagine, there aren't a lot of guests for a Doc Savage convention in the present day since 99% of people who have written the character are dead. <laughs> you know, like yeah, I guess that's true. I hadn't thought about know, that. <laughs> so like I was the hottest thing in the Doc Savage world for that year because I had actually written something new uh, and it was in Phoenix. So I was like, honey, have you? do you want to go to the Grand Canyon? We'll, we'll make a Phoenix. little trip out Phoenix. of it great series uh, convention um i really oh, like Phoenix. yeah they have a really great convention it's a big one and um you know what'll happen is that there'll be a doc savage movie probably 10 15 years from now and they will drag you in <laughs> <laughs> i actually at the time i'm pretty sure dynamite did that comic only because it had been the shane black project had been announced because oh, okay. there was a minute where shane black was going to make a doc savage movie with The Rock, who is actually perfect casting for the Man of Bronze. Um, and it fell apart, but I do have a mutual friend with uh, Shane Black, a director named uh, Fred Decker. And I said, Fred, I don't ask for a lot of favors. And he was like, you want me to give your Doc Savage comic to Shane, don't you? I was like, I kind of do. I kind of I I feel like it would be Hollywood malpractice on my part <laughs> if I didn't say, hey, guy making the $300 million Doc Savage movie, you should possibly look at my humble craft. But then the project uh, the project never went anywhere. Um, well, I guess it, it sort of falls back on what we were talking about earlier with the Kickstarter stuff is finding an audience, you know, with, uh, with these properties. Um, 
um, as close as a property can be to your personal feelings and your personal mm -hmm. thing. It's still, it's, it's still its own little creature that runs off and has a life of its own, you know, like, um, and some of them, uh, some of them hang out close to home. Some of them run far afield and you just never know where anything's going to, going to take. Cause it's, uh, cause it's really, it lives in the imagination of the person who's reading it. Mm -hmm. So it even ties in with uh, what you were saying about Jerry Conway, like Jerry Conway let a story out in the world in 1974 and you read it and like, was like, I love this thing. And then you made a little place in your head for it. And you know, you put a little shrine there and then mm -hmm. when actually meeting him, he has not had that experience with you at all, Right. <laughs> you know, but, but that experience exists uh, in everybody. So even when I go to conventions, I try and remember, that when I'm interacting with people, because um, they'll come up to you and you won't know them, but right. uh, know a little bit about you, and they know, and they they've made a, a place in their heart and their heads for the things that you've done. So mm -hmm. it's always good to be kind, and it's always good to be try and interact as best you can with everybody, because you never know what it is that they've experienced about you already. So yeah, no, and I I I. I hope it never would there, you know, there are a bunch of things about this business that never grow old. One of them is getting the comps in the mail mm -hmm. and seeing the, seeing the book for the first time that never gets old and meeting someone who like genuinely interacted with your work and it meant something mm -hmm. to them and they got something out of it that even the ones who are, who lack social graces, it's, it's still, it's they usually still are like so invested too. <laughs> yeah. I have, I don't know that you can make it out in the background, but there's a guy who's like an obsessive uh, Ninja Turtles fan who, when I did the thing with Kevin Eastman, was all in on that project because he's an obsessive Turtles fan. Yes. And I mean, he's, he's on it. He's at every panel. He's online. He, you know, follows everybody and all that. And one of the things he does, he's an artist and he paints broken skateboard decks. <clears throat> and he paints comic book characters on broken skateboard decks. Yeah. And I was at San Diego like three years ago and he came up to me very shyly and he had this package in his hand and it was one of the characters from the thing I did with Eastman on a broken skateboard deck. He said, I drew Miyazaki for you and it's, it's gorgeous. It's wow. like that. I have it on my bookshelf. Uh, and I like the idea of this guy, like that wasn't something he did in five minutes. That was a week of his life <laughs> you know, that he spent working on fan art of something that completely comes from our imagination. And that's the power of that is wild yeah. and the responsibility of it, you know, to do something good with it, to, to not put poison in people's brains, to put good things in people's brains. And, you know, and the thing about, the the also to respect the you know to have a certain amount of awe for the the train of it in a way in the sense that the thing that Jerry Conway put in my head first in the seventies to use your example was him writing Jack Kirby characters from mm -hmm. earlier in the seventies so for J you know Jerry's in awe of Jack I may be in awe of Jerry but Jerry's in awe of Jack yeah. Jack's in awe of the Old Testament who knows what Jackson off, but uh, it's hard. It's, hard. it's uh, when you're talking about deities, it's hard to find the thing bigger than Jack uh, yeah, yeah. in in that sense. Um, well, but, well, if I can, if I can pimp Kickstarter, 
I think we're getting a we're getting an echo somewhere. Is that no, on your end? Okay. Yeah. Sorry. We were just getting it there for a second. But if I can kickstart again, Scott, I, I think that's very well said in terms of the the, the fan base. I mean, I, I think that you know it's very kind of poetically said, and and I, I may repeat that as my own uh, on the next show. Uh, um, I, I, I'll try and give you credit, but um, it is the beauty of Kickstarter. I mean, I, I you know having like released um, uh, books in comic shops for you know a few years now, like it can sometimes feel like you're screaming into the Grand Canyon, right? I mean, of course, like you you hear back on Twitter. Uh, and when you go to a con, you'll get those people who will come up to you, and, and those are always wonderful, right? Um, uh, my experience with Kickstarter is that it's that for a month. Um, I mean, you're 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 inviting you're inviting the fans into your living room to a certain degree, right? And you're kind of making this thing together, um, and so the feedback is like immediate. You know, if you do something wrong, you're going to hear it right off the bat. But if you do something right, they're going to throw you a party, right? And it, and it is just that to the tenth power. And I think that I mean, it sounds like you're kind of you're exploring the idea of actually doing one of these things. I think you totally should. I think it would be a runaway success. I think you'd fall in love. I think you'd fall in love with it. Um, but what has worked the best for me is finding out a way to kind of um, amplify all of that. You know, I mean, it, it is Kickstarter at its best is when you make the backers part of the project. And and just just in in the most basic sense, they're bringing the book to life. They are already. But the more you can kind of make them a part of the process, um, uh, you know, I mean, sometimes it's as simple as, well, should we go with this variant cover or this variant cover? What do you think of this? What do you think of that? And, and, and they're in on some of the decision making. But but we have gone out of our way to kind of bring them into the book, like literally and figuratively as much as possible. We have all these, we have all these drawn tiers that are like, that are, that are huge, you know, um, uh, you know, we'll put you in the background of a scene. We'll, we'll, we'll make you a supporting character. Uh, uh, you know, we'll make you this doctor who, who has three pages and is interacting with the, uh, um, the, the characters. And so now this person you're talking about who has like created this space and like his or her, you know, heart and or mind for for you and your creations, they can now literally be part of the book. They can take the book and be like, you know, we, 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 you know, we actually have one right here. It's like the the limo driver uh, uh, in this scene is actually a backer. Um, oh, who was? Yeah. I, I had a funny experience uh, with that where uh, someone <laughs> someone backed drawing blood, and they wanted to be they wanted themselves and their toddler, their two year old, drawn into the really? comic. Drawing Blood is an adult R-rated <laughs> book. The spin-off comic, The Radically Rearranged Ronin Ragdolls, is a YA, much more YA book. But yeah. the guy hadn't thought about that. And he said, yeah, draw me and my toddler into Drawing Blood. And the first issue has nudity and cursing and a gunfight. And he's like, I don't think I should be in Drawing. I can't show this comic to my kid. And we were like, it's fine. We'll put you in the rag dolls instead. We should have really thought about maybe your two-year-old shouldn't be in the, in the R rate, in the, you know, the, the R rated comic. Yeah. But, I mean, uh, this guy, this guy was so excited about it. Uh, and so happy with what he ended up with that he's done it twice since, you know, I mean, we're on our third campaign. He's, he's done it in every campaign. And then we do these other things where, uh, we, you know, uh, variant covers are big, you know, usually, uh, we, we like to have four covers, uh, every Kickstarter that just, a lot of people like them for collectability. Some people don't like this one. They like that one. You know, we like to give them, them options. Um, and we, and we like the, uh, um, the uh, uh, pop culture references. So we have like a Magnum VI cover this go around. We have a Mandalorian cover. We have a, um, a Back to the Future cover. And so um, we started doing this, these these put me on a cover tiers. 
So we will um, we will actually put the backer on a cover. You know, it's like um, I mean, we actually did it with this one. It's a little bit more uh, complex because you have what uh, you know for the character uh, as he's kind of you know making his like astral jump or whatever. Um, but we did these with backers where it's like uh, um, you know it's it's actually you jumping or or whatever it is. You know you uh, it, it, you know you your Magnum PI sitting on the Ferrari the the, the whole nine yards. Um, oh, wow. and so we, and so we started doing that. It started out as a digital thing because obviously printing is is complex. But um, so we started doing that, and people went bonkers for them. Yeah, I want to be on a cover. Yeah, I want to be on a cover. I want to be on the Ghostbusters cover. I want to be on this or whatever. And yeah. um, and and then what we started hearing from our backers, you know, again, you get the immediate feedback is like, this is awesome, and we're all in on it. But you need to find us a way to get an actual physical copy uh, with us on it. Um, mm. and, and so I'm like, oh, well, well now I have to do this. Right. And so I spent like a week of my life <laughs> calling around to different printers, trying to find a, a, an affordable way to actually like print yeah. a single issue with, 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 with these backers on it now. And so now that person you're talking about, they can come on, they can back the jump, they can, they can get drawn onto a cover. And now, now I, I can send them a physical copy of the comic you book. The printer that can do that. That's awesome. With, with, yeah. With, with, with their face on it. Yeah, it's gotten in, in, in Boba Fett's armor. I mean, it's like, so, print, so it, printing, this, has gotten, is, printing has gotten pretty reasonable. And one of the, you know, when I was a filmmaker, I always kind of encouraged people to know as much about the process, no matter what your part in it is, you know, actors always take day jobs as, uh, you know, as, waiters and i always say be a pa for a minute be a grip be an assistant director be like learn a little bit more about this thing and one of my favorite like good news bad news things about doing kickstarters as a comic book writer is i know more now than i maybe am comfortable knowing about the nuts and bolts of making a comic book like when i had to print comics for drawing blood i was like Holy shit, the margins are razor thin. Like I don't want to I don't I don't want to go back and, you know, I'm not forgiving any publisher I've ever worked for for their shitty page rates. But part of me goes, well, I kind of I get it a little bit. <laughs> like if I was making 30 cents a copy, I would maybe feel a little different. Um, but it isn't, you know, talking about the different audiences. Uh, we've stated this stat a few times, but I think I've heard that if Kickstarter was a single publisher, it would be the third largest publisher in comics. Wow. Like yeah. above Dark Horse, above Image, above, you know, any anyone other than Marvel and DC. And who, you know, with what's happening with Marvel yeah. and DC, who knows how long that's going to still be true. Well, I guess it's kind of like really uh, you're sort of, it's a, it's more of a marketplace than a publisher. I mean, it is, it does fulfill yeah. that role, but it's like an actual marketplace. It's kind of like what I imagine Webtoons has been pretty interesting to me to see how that sort of develops. It's more of an app because there's like mm -hmm. a, like a destination that you go to and then there's a clearinghouse of things that you can take a look at. But, um, it's interesting to see that sort of thing take off as well. Cause that's not even, there's no print aspect to it whatsoever. Right. Like, you know, and, um, a lot of these things wind up as TV shows too. Like, um, um, my daughter was uh, showing me, um, it's a, it's an amazing show. It's called Itawan class. It's a, it's, it's really great. It's a, a South Korean show. And, uh, it, it, the, it's about, I think it's 13 episodes. They're about an hour and a half long. They're movies, like it's a complete film, like, you know, with like 
beginning, middle, and end within a larger narrative. It's 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 astounding what you can do with it. But it started out as a comic on um, on webtoons, so it's just yeah. it's funny to see how these things go. Yeah, and it, it, it's no superheroes. There's no like you know. There's no horror aspect to it at all. It's yeah. it's the story of a noodle shop. Right. Well, I love, I always love that thing Alan Moore said about how just completely odd it is, the superhero thing. It's yeah. like, it's like if novels were only about, you know, milkmen, <laughs> like if literally it was weird, it's a weird thing to write a novel that's not about a milkman. Why would you do that? Novels are about milkmen. Everybody knows that. It's yeah. just the strange, like for one genre to take over, you know, you know, operas are about cowboys. Clearly, all operas are about cowboys. Why would you bother making an opera that wasn't about a cowboy? It's just the strangest goddamn thing in the world. And that does seem to be shifting. It's just one of those funny things where, man, unhooking that public perception of comic books from superheroes mm -hmm. is like a life's work for somebody. You it's know, I always think about reading... Playboy magazine, Harlan Ellison wrote a thing about one of those like classic comics aren't just for children anymore things in the 80s about Dark Knight Returns and Watchmen. And it's like that was 1986 and people are still writing that friggin article. <laughs> you know, people rewrite that article every year. And it's like, how many examples do you need? And it's that thing. You know, when people talk about this stuff, I always say there are so many TV shows based on comic books that you have no idea are based on comic books. I love like, I don't think anybody that, that. that watched Stumptown <laughs> thought a lot about the fact that it was a comic book. Yeah. Because a detective show set in, you know, Seattle. What what does that have to do with comic books? It's like, well, Greg Ruka is what it has to do with comic books, and Matthew Southworth is what it has to do with comic books. And uh it is that's a whole other discussion, but the way in which comics are sort of the redheaded stepchild and R and D department of Hollywood while still selling an incredibly low number of units is pretty, <laughs> is pretty wild. I love, I was working on the, I think I can tell the story. I was working on the red Sonia movie over at topple currently in pre-production. They're writing it and the rights holder you know, it's their job to do this, but they were talking about, well, the Red Sonja fans expect X, Y, and Z. And, you know, people who don't know anything about the comic book industry sitting in a conference room go, oh, yeah, the Red Sonja fans, we have to take that seriously. And when he left the meeting, I called up the Comicron sales page and I said, just so you know, the current <laughs> issue of Red Sonja from Dynamite sold 6,000 copies. I don't know if you need to be afraid of those 6,000 people and what their opinion of your Red Sonja movie is going to be. I was like, yes, there will be people who haven't read a Red Sonja comic book ever and have a loud internet opinion about how you've fucked up the franchise. But like a good Red Sonja number one might sell 40,000 copies. I was like, that's a rounding error of an opening weekend box office in one theater. <laughs> you know, like that's a... That's a well, multiplex in Albuquerque, you know. What that's a multiplex in Albuquerque on a Sunday. That's that forty thousand people. <laughs> and Star Wars has done pretty well with every every Star Wars fan hating every new Star Wars thing. So like, sure. 
you know, <laughs> you never know exactly. You're not going to please everybody. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, well, the hope is that uh, you get people that have no idea about the comic that are suddenly comic readers now. Like, that's the hope. Like, that's exciting. Yeah. 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 No, and it's, you know, the, another object lesson about how the Elvira comics I do sell well for Dynamite, but we did an Elvira Kickstarter when comic book shops were closed. It did way better than the comics ever did in comic shops. And that oh, fascinates yeah. me. Yeah, sure. But I think it's because that's a fan base that doesn't go in comic book shops. And that's not, they love Elvira. They don't love comic books. Yeah. Like they're reading well, an Elvira comic book because you're selling them Elvira. They don't. Comic shops are getting harder and harder to find, like the brick and mortar stores. You know, not everybody yeah. has one within a reasonable distance of themselves. Like I grew up without a comic shop. I went on eBay and bought comics that I was interested in when I was 12 and 13. Um, wow. And so that was, I mean, my, my, I had an older brother too. So he had his whole collection that I pillaged through. Um, but as I started figuring out what I wanted to read, then I started going on eBay and trying to find certain issues for things. And, and that was how I was able to accumulate comics at all. So, you know, That's the wild. internet has, has revolutionized how people read comics too and how, how accessible they are. And I'm so old, I'm a spinner rack in the 7-Eleven guy. Like, that's my first con. I, my dad bought me Star Wars number four when I was 12 in what was at the time called a candy store, which was sort of a Rite Aid with a diner in it, like, and a magazine rack, like, and a big magazine section. Those don't, they literally, it's a type of thing that doesn't exist anymore. It's like I'm talking about, you know, buggy whips, but... That was actually where you got comic books. You got you went in. You, your dad bought you a candy bar, a couple of comic books. I think the first comic my dad ever bought me was a Sergeant Fury, because he was a sergeant in the Second World War. You know, there you go. Look, yeah, exactly. look, it's me without a shave. You know, <laughs> uh, so that was my introduction. So I've actually never read superhero comics growing up. I was into the Nick Fury stuff and the, you know, the sci-fi comics. Uh, and uh, on that weird general, like my favorite Jack Kirby stuff is the DC stuff. Mm -hmm. That's all him as opposed to the Stan Lee stuff. The Stan Lee stuff is fine, but it's not. There's something so psycho about all of his DC work that I can't get enough of it. <laughs> you know, it's uh, it's uh, it's something yeah. I've I've loved since uh, it was introduced to me. I was but, one of the uh, I was one of the rubes that got pulled in by uh, Death of Superman. I mean, I was very young, but it's like you start to see it on the news, and you're like, I need that. Um, <laughs> but the uh, the the beauty of it was that you know it got me in a comic shop, and you know, and then the image revolution is happening, and you find Vertigo, and um, you know, you start uh, you know digging through back bins and uh, back issue bins, and you find you know Demon in a Bottle, and uh, um, you know, I got on a, a good track, I think, pretty quickly um and and sort of um it's weird because um yeah i mean i guess like you know when i was really young uh you know the batman movies out and stuff like that those those were comics to me but i think if you get into a comic shop and this is where a this is where a really good comic shop owner or clerk or whatever you want to say can really kind of affect the trajectory of these things because you know i i, I had a um it was you know it was comics corner uh comics spelled with an x on the end of it uh in um in, in Fraser, Michigan, uh, uh, right outside Detroit. And, um, he would, um, and he'd be like, ah, you don't want that crap, you know, come on over here. 
you know, yeah, look at this, uh, look at this Garth Ennis book, you know, Hey, check out, check out preacher, you know, Hey, hey you, you know, you really need to check out this, uh, this arc where they, they made Iron Man an alcoholic in the seventies. Um, you know, and, and then you see what comics can be and, and it informed everything. I mean, it, it started, it informed my taste in movies and, and all of these things where it was like, you start to find real human drama, not just, uh, guys with superpowers, you know, uh, punching each other or throwing people through buildings and stuff like that. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I love that stuff also, but you know what I mean? Um, and, and of course the, the best stuff is when you kind of, you know, sort of mesh those two things. Um, Skylar, I want to know what, what comics were you ordering from eBay? Like what was, what were you collecting? I was ordering a bunch of X-Men comics from like the early nineties and some from the eighties, I think. Um, I was a huge rogue fan growing up, so I needed everything rogue. I wanted her first appearance from Avengers. You know, I wanted all of it. Um, and then as I got a little older, I think CrossGen was a thing that came out where they were doing a bunch of different, it eventually got pulled in by Marvel, but at a, I want to say sometime in the early two thousands, it was its own thing. And they had a bunch of different stories. Um, I think there was one called Meridian and Sojourn and a bunch of different stuff. And so I was interested in finding those. Um, and nice. I think Meridian, I was pulled into that one because it was written by uh, Barbara Kessel. And I was very interested to find other women making comics because as Barbara's a year old, you know, it seemed so yeah. like a thing that didn't happen. Um, Have you, you know, met Barbara? Have you had a chance to run no. into her at a convention? I she's a no, I would love to. Here in Southern California. So, yeah, she's yeah. great. Yeah. yeah I was, so that I was, was that was the kind of stuff I was looking for on eBay, and then you know, as I got older, I started realizing just how how vast comics is. You know, like oh sure. You know, everybody who isn't in comics or who has sort of a, a peripheral interest in comics, like everybody knows about the cape stories and, and Batman and Superman, and that's still like one of the first questions I get from people when I say that I'm a comic artist is, well, do you want to work for Marvel? Do you want to work for DC? And like, those are obviously huge goals and, I, and I'm grateful for the opportunity to get to work with them. But that wasn't my initial goal when I went and started making comics. My initial goal was like, I wanted to tell spy stories. Like I love James Bond. I love born identity like I wanted to tell you know sure. slinking through the shadows stories and you know get the fuck out girl like I wanted to tell those kinds of stories <laughs> yeah so no, yeah I I've I've been at this five years I don't think I've technically written a superhero story yet and I would I <clears throat> stop it's one of those things I always sort of whisper at cons it's like I do actually kind of prefer the shadow to Batman and I prefer Doc Savage. I love Superman, but I there's something about how trod the ground is now. I always use the example if Joe Casada called me tomorrow and said, Fantastic Four, start tomorrow. I would be so excited. I'd be excited about the page rate, you know, going up from what I've been working for recently. But the a large part of my brain would go, uh, I guess they fight Doctor Doom. I don't know, man. Like they go into space, and I guess I could bring Galactus. <sighs> Just kind of exhausted thinking about it. And again, by the end of the week, I would be excited, and I would come up with a brand new take, and it would be wonderful. But it's a lot more work than them giving me Betty Page and saying, "Take this pinup model from 1953 and find a way that there can be comic books about her," which was a a challenge, but I was not treading ground anyone else had tread before. And yeah. that's 
that's that's a little more exciting than what can I what can I do with Batman that no one's ever done with Batman. A lot it's, of people have done a lot of stuff with Batman. Like that's a that is a that is a hill, man. That is a hill to climb, and I appreciate anyone. Hats off to anyone who can rise to that challenge. But uh, Scott, what were your first comics? Do you remember? Uh, yeah, so I I came into comics kind of backwards. I I saw Marvel had a show, or they had a whole bunch of animated shows when I was a kid. So there was like a Fantastic Four animated thing and a a uh, Spider-Man animated show, and I was really into those things. Um, and I was drawing all the time. I just started drawing at like a very young age, so I was always drawing the things that were on the TV. So I got excited about that, and then someone pointed out to me that there was a, there was a there was a comic strip in the the local paper that was a Spider-Man strip, mm -hmm. and um, and uh, um, and then then I was able to get a couple comics. I I, I someone had a, a whole box of comics, and I was too polite at the time. They were like, "Here's a whole box of comics if you want this giant box of comics," and I was like. I'll take three. So I took three, but like, like I wish I'd taken all of them, but I, I took three and then like, um, cause they weren't going to use them at all. But, uh, it was a whole bunch of Spider-Man and, uh, the thing and, and stuff like that. And then I just, uh, I, I really, I came for, to the party for Spider-Man and then I stayed for X-Men cause X-Men mm -hmm. really like, um, I probably would have wandered away if it had only been Spider-Man. Um, but X-Men was a big, a big thing for me. So just, uh, I loved the characterizations. I loved uh, how everybody was in that little universe. And uh, mm. so that was yeah, really I, neat. I was, a, I was a big X-Men fan in the eighties. I was reading that pretty regularly. It's a great and book. Claremont did an amazing job. Yeah. So. I, for research, I had a crazy story idea that will never get off the ground, but uh, me and Dave Acosta came up with a, uh, a Marvel story, uh, and I had to reread Secret Wars. Oh, okay, because it sure. tangentially involves Secret Wars, and <laughs> Secret Wars is like if you fed a robot Chris Claremont everything Chris Claremont ever wrote, beat the robot about the head and shoulders with a baseball bat, and yeah. asked it to recapitulate what it had learned. The writing you know, is incredibly bad yeah you know it's funny because i i had the same exact reaction to secret wars when it came out i was reading oh, it yeah you know, when it was happening and uh these were not the characters that i recognized at all uh from yeah it was kind of like um it was kind of like a publisher a, writing it that's the amazing part <laughs> yeah but it was it was yeah it was as if like there was just a disconnect it was almost like um reading an 18th, you know, like, like X-Men was kind of like reading like a 19th century novel. And then all of a sudden it was just like written as if it was like a toy commercial. Yeah. And I, I didn't know how to process like, um, uh, that depiction of it. I never recognized any of the characters outside of Louise Simonson seemed to have nailed it pretty well. Mm. Um, the, the vibe and, um, Joe Duffy too. But, uh, yeah, no one really uh, came close to how Claremont was writing it. Yeah, no, Joe Joe Duffy is great. I I think her final run on the Star Wars comic is actually very very good from the eighties. No one remembers it, but it's yeah, sure. 
Simonson and Joe Duffy both had amazing runs on Star Wars um, that are that are worth checking out. But yeah, my my Marvel idea they'll never do. Uh, I don't know why we were kicking this around, but I'm a, such still such a huge Nick Fury fan. And the idea was Casablanca with Nick Fury and Sue Storm oh. while Reed is gone. Okay, they fall in love. And fight Aww. some menace together, and then he comes back, and you know Nick has to walk off into the rain <laughs> with Dum Dum Dugan, and you know we will never speak of this again. That I was in love with Sue Storm for a couple of months in the eighties. Yeah, uh, they'll, yeah. they'll, they'll never do that in a million years. But I love the story so much. Sweet. Uh, on that on that ridiculous note, uh, let's wrap up and. Uh, Skylar, tell the tell the folks at home where they can find you and what you got coming up. Yeah, um, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram uh, at Sky Patridge, so S K Y E P A T R I D G E. Um, and then I'm also getting ready next week. I said uh, Marvel's doing a anthology, so that'll be out in shops. Um, it's the Women of Marvel number one. So I'm in there with a bunch nice. of other amazing creators. Um. Sky, SkylarPatridge.com is also my website. And yeah, that's, that's where I So am. that comes out next Wednesday from when we're recording that, which is the actual day this will go live. Yes, yes, it'll so be out today. Stop watching this podcast, go to your comic <laughs> store, and buy Women of Marvel number one. Yes. And uh, Scott? Um, yeah, you can find me on Twitter at uh, Koblish. Uh, I got it so early that I didn't really think to make it at Scott Koblish. There is an at Scott Koblish, but it was like uh, taken by some Chinese company. And then um, I just use it to boost everyone once in a while. I just like at Scott Koblish, but I'm on, I'm just at Koblish. Uh, and then on uh, Instagram, I wised up and I'm at Scott Koblish. So um, nice. uh, I'm there as well. And um, yeah, I, I do a lot of things. Some stuff is uh, in the, the, some stuff is in the process of doing. I'm doing a Marvel project, but it hasn't been announced yet. Um, the Anthrax anthology comes out in mid-May or maybe late May. Um, the How to Draw DC Comics characters comes out, I think, uh, probably three days uh, before this podcast comes out, yet four days before uh, uh, this we're doing this right now. So <laughs> somewhere in, you can go to the store and find it as soon as you hear it. Uh, and then um, uh, I think that's about it right now. Oh, you can always buy the, the many deaths of Scott Koblish on um, uh, wherever fine books are sold. Which is absolutely hilarious, by the way. I, I recommend the many deaths of Scott Koblish very highly. Yeah. It's me dying over and over again and uh, very silly, um, uh, ways. Uh, so I, I had a lot of fun. It's very, very cathartic and, uh, it's a good bathroom reader. So. <laughs> totally. Totally. <laughs> and Ryland, you have 48 uh, hours on the jump, right? 48 yeah. hours on the jump. Yeah. Uh, go get the jump. Yeah. I'll go right into that. Um, yeah, the jump, my kick you in the teeth and not anywhere else as we've covered uh, heavily on this podcast. Uh, 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 Paranoid thriller set in the world of astral projection. The jump is available for 48 more hours on uh, Kickstarter. And uh, yeah, go check that out. Um, it's tons of fun. And is that? Well, somebody's ringing. <laughs> oh, internet.
Um, yeah, and uh, and and it, the the beauty of that uh, Kickstarter page right now is it is a uh, it is a great uh, real deal Ryland Grant shop right now. So um, obviously cons have been canceled for a long time. I don't get to do a lot of them because I have a uh, a four year old at home and um, I have a, a day job, uh, so I don't get to travel too much. Um, so if you want an autographed book from me, this is a great place to get it. Plenty of copies of uh, uh, of Banjax and of Aberrant. Uh, you can also get those in fine comic shops everywhere and via Amazon and Comixology. Uh, you can also get um, The Peacekeepers, which is my Fargo-esque uh, quirky crime drama, uh, bank robbers and hijinks and all sorts of uh, uh, good, um, clean fun with that one. Uh, otherwise, I'm at Ryland Grant on all forms of social media. It's R-Y-L-E-N-D-G-R-A-N-T for those who are listening. Uh, it's not a real name. My parents drunkenly arranged letters and saddled me with it, so I have to spell it for you. Uh, find me there. <laughs> nice. And uh, my uh, my website, everything kind of can be found there, which is davidavalonefreelance.com. Uh, like Scott, uh, a not a Chinese company, but uh, the bastards at GoDaddy jumped on davidavaloni.com. <laughs> yeah, big moneymaker, guys. Run with that. Um, literally, it was a thing where, like, I hadn't built a website yet, and I searched to see if the domain name was available on GoDaddy. And when you do that, they snap it up. And then when you come back, they're like, pay us $2,000 and we'll give you your, I'm like, no, no. So davidavalonefreelance.com. Uh, it hasn't been announced yet, but I'm tired of pretending that I haven't been working on it for a year, which is uh, the next series I have coming from Dynamite is Elvira meets Vincent Price. Ooh, wow. Good, clean, wholesome uh, American fun. Uh, and, uh, Volume two of Drawing Blood coming to the Kickstarter fans, and I've got some other stuff that I'm working on that is not quite, uh, not quite ready for prime time yet. But maybe some there, there will be some Kickstarters in the new year, and I will absolutely bug Jerry Duggan and tell him that he should bug you, Scott, about doing a, a Kickstarter together, the two of you guys, because I think that would be great. Good, yeah. <laughs> anyway, thank you so much for being on the show. It was lovely to have you. Thanks, guys. Thank you. And Thank we'll see you. you see see you on the next exciting episode. Thanks for Excellent. listening. If you're watching us on YouTube, be sure to smash that like button. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or other fine purveyors of ear crack, please leave us a five-star review. And wherever you're watching and or listening, subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. We'll see you back here next week for more Madcap Hijinks on the Writer's Block. For more information, visit PendantAudio.com. Thanks for listening.